pollution. Um, basically, what I want us to do today is take a look at several scientific problems, major problems with evolution. Uh, some of the things that we're going to talk about today uh, were covered uh, last week, and some of the things that we're going to talk about were not covered last week. Uh, the first thing I want to discuss is the uh, first law of thermodynamics, energy conservation. Okay. Now, let me say this. The evolutionary model, the view that uh, there are only naturalistic causes, there's no supernatural God who created the universe, everything happened naturally, evolution could be consistent if either one of the, the first two laws of thermodynamics, if either one of these laws uh, were not true, then you could have a possibility uh, for evolution as far as uh, uh, there would be the possibility of uh, an eternal universe. Um, first, energy conservation, the first law of thermodynamics. What that tells us is that no energy is now being created or destroyed. The amount of the energy in the universe is uh, constant. Um, but by the way, the first and second laws of thermodynamics, we need to recognize these are probably the two firmest uh, they, they've got the most solid foundation in all of science. If anything contradicts these two laws, uh, it, it's time to get rid of your model or your theory uh, because of the weight uh, of these scientific laws. And keep in mind, we went over the scientific method last week. It starts with observation uh, and uh, it ends with a theory or a law, a law is a theory that's ex accepted on a universal basis. And so uh, energy conservation and uh, energy deterioration being scientific laws uh, have an awful lot of evidence in their favor. And when you take something as flimsy as a scientific model that contradicts them, it's time to uh, find a new model. Um, but whatever the case, Energy conservation is the first law of thermodynamics. No energy is now being created or destroyed. So if the universe came into existence, and we're going to see that's what the second law of thermodynamics teaches, if the universe came into existence, then whatever process brought the universe into existence is no longer in operation today. Uh, the evolutionists would love to find new energy coming into the universe. Uh, but you don't get that. We don't have that. The amount of energy uh, remains uh, constant. Take a look at Genesis chapter 2. I just want to show you that the Bible taught this thousands of years before modern science uh, proved this scientific law. Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. 
So basically, the Bible teaches that God created the universe in six days. Some uh, creationists argue for six literal days. Others argue that they're just six different stages. But whatever the case, uh, after his creation work, God rested from his creation work. God is not creating anything at this point. And uh, uh, the first law of thermodynamics, no energy is now being created or destroyed, is perfectly consistent with that. And as I mentioned, the evolutionists would love to have uh, new energy popping into the universe uh, to replace the energy that is no longer usable. And that leads us to the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics, energy deterioration. Remember, the first law says that the amount of energy in the universe remains constant. The second law tells us that even though the amount of usable energy, the amount of energy in the universe remains constant, the amount of usable energy is running down. You see, energy changes forms, and when it changes forms, it becomes less and less usable uh, to us. Uh, Eventually, if we go far enough in the future and, not, and nothing outside the universe intervenes, such as God, uh, then all the energy in the universe uh, will uh, be in a useless state. We'll reach a state of equilibrium and the universe uh, will basically die. Uh, and so what this tells us is that the universe is running down if left to itself it will have an end, and if it has an end, it had to have a beginning. And again, uh, the universe, a synonym for the universe is nature. And if all of nature needs a cause, then that cause can't come from within nature. It must be a cause that transcends nature, and uh, something that transcends nature is called the supernatural. And so... Uh, basically, the universe needs a supernatural uh, cause. Uh, we talked about the Big Bang model and the expansion of the universe uh, last week, where the universe is expanding in all directions, uh, scientists uh, tell us today. Uh, but that means if you go backwards in time, the universe will get smaller and smaller, and, uh, and basically that confirms uh, the beginning uh, of the universe uh, as well. Since from nothing, nothing comes, something must exist outside the universe that caused it to come into existence. Uh, by the way, with energy deterioration, uh, this also did not take the Bible by surprise. Many people will mock the Bible, they will mock the scriptures, and say that it's outdated. But if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, or in fact, Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verse 31, we'll see that uh, once again, uh, the Bible was making statements in the scientific uh, context uh, that were not yet proven to be true at that point in time. Uh, Mark, chapter 13, verse 31 Jesus said this, heaven and earth, and that's the way the Bible refers to the universe as heaven and earth. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, when you turn to Revelation 21 
in Revelation 22, we see that there will be a new heavens and a new earth uh, as the old heaven and the old earth will pass away. Uh, but basically, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus seems to be indicating that uh, there is a process of deterioration within the universe, and the universe is winding down, and uh, the present order of things will pass away, and only through the power of God will there be a new heavens and a new earth. So, when you combine these two, uh, you see that no energy is now being created or destroyed, uh, yet when energy changes forms, it becomes less and less usable, so the universe is going to have an end, uh, and you, you don't have any new energy popping into the universe to replace the useless uh, energy, that energy which has been used up. And uh, so you combine these two uh, scientific laws, and it's a death blow uh, to the theory, the, the model of evolution. Uh, the next major problem with evolution I'd like to talk about is the evolutionary dating methods. The evolutionary uh, dating methods. Uh, they are inconsistent and they are unreliable, to say the least, and uh, they assume a principle that is called uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism. Now, let me say this about uniformitarianism. Uh, we spoke about last week the principle of uniformity. Okay? The principle of uniformity or analogy that if we find an effect in the present and we know its cause, and then we find a similar effect in the past, it probably has a similar cause. Uh, basically, it's just the present interprets the past. We can't go back in time. All we have is the present. And so science assumes that through the present we can interpret the past. That's a good scientific principle. Uh, without it, we can't do science. But uniformitarianism is a dogmatic application of the principle of uniformity. And what uniformitarianism does, it, it, it makes certain assumptions that science has not proven. Uh, uh, some of these assumptions are that there was no worldwide uh, catastrophes. Absolutely no worldwide catastrophes. In other words, the principle of uniformitarianism, which is assumed by evolutionists when they date uh, the earth, the universe, whatever, um, this assumption would be false if there was a worldwide flood uh, like the Bible uh, speaks about. If you had a worldwide flood, it's going to change uh, the rate of decay. Um, the the uh, uniformitarian principle assumes a constant rate of decay. So whether you're using carbon-14 or, or some other uh, method to date the age of rocks or the age of of uh, whatever it is that they're dating, they assume that the processes that are occurring today have been occurring at the same rate uh, throughout all time. Uh, let, let me give you an, an example of uh, how fallacious that could be. Uh, let's say you, you walk into my study and you see two books on the desk and they both have the same amount uh, of dust on them, okay? 
you you would probably assume that they probably you know that they both these books had been there for approximately the same amount of time however what could have occurred is that uh, you know I could have had one book there for two days but after the first day I, I could have walked into the room dusted that book off completely and then put another book fresh book right next to it and then the, the day later they would both have the same amount of dust it looked like they'd been there just as long but we'll see what happened was there was intervention from the outside okay and so the evolutionary dating methods do not disprove Christianity they assume Christianity is false they assume the Bible is not true and then they argue uh, from there uh, and they assume their con the constant rate of decay. Now rocks known to have been only a few hundred years old have been dated to be hundreds of millions uh, of years old. They were rocks caused by uh, lava from vol volcanoes. We knew how old they were. We dated them and lo and behold these rocks only a few hundred years old were dated to be hundreds of millions of years old. Dr. Henry Morris, the uh, president of the Institute for uh, uh, Creation Research, he states that there's many different ways to date the Earth's age, but evolutionists only use those methods which give astronomically old dates uh, since evolution needs millions of years to seem slightly possible. Let me say, if somebody tells you that a frog turned into a prince in an instant, okay, Dwayne Gish brings this, uh, this illustration up. Somebody tells you that a, a frog turned into a prince in an instant, you say that's a fairy tale. Okay? But if somebody tells you um, that a frog over millions upon millions upon millions of years turned into a prince, we call that science. Okay? So that is why the evolutionist needs uh, these astronomically old dates if evolution is going to sound plausible. No American would believe that a frog turned into a, a prince in an instant. However, probably I would, I would guess most Americans believe that it can happen if you give it enough time. Uh, now there are some methods that point to a very young Earth. We're talking an Earth between 6,000 and 20,000 years old. Uh, one of the methods would be population statistics. Um, it, it's irrelevant whether you're, you're talking about World War One, World War Two, uh, the bubonic plague, uh, horrible diseases. Uh, the population of mankind doubles. Uh, it increases in a geometrical rate. Okay so that uh... and, and that, that that rate does not change uh... has not changed uh, as far back as we've gone into the past um, however if the population of mankind has been increasing at that rate and the evolutionists you know they want these constant rates going back throughout time but if that is the case um, you'd have so many people on this planet right now uh, there, there wouldn't even be enough room to move. Uh, so, th th you know, th th there's no way. If you go with population statistics, it takes you back to pretty much to the historic. You get your first couple at about the 
the uh, traditional date uh, of Noah's Ark. Okay. Uh, another uh, method uh, for dating a, uh, a young Earth is the Earth's magnetic field. Um, as you go back in time, the magnetic field gets stronger and stronger and stronger until uh, uh, once you get about 20,000 years in the past, and uh, it, the Earth's magnetic field will be far too strong uh, to sustain life. Now, what a lot of evolutionists are doing is they're saying, well, these things were not constant. Okay? They were not at a constant rate. If you go far enough, it, it might move in the other direction. Okay? Well, once they do that, what do they do? They've just taken their principle of uniformitarianism and they've thrown it out the window. Okay? So, uh, um, I think there's some good arguments for an old Earth, and I think there's some good arguments, scientifically speaking, for a young Earth. Um, and I, I think that just shows what kind of confusion there is, that we're making an awful lot of assumptions. You know, I, I don't know. When God created the first trees, um, if he wanted to put a bunch of rings inside that tree, so be it. And, uh, you know, Adam and Eve, on the day they were created, uh, you and I would have probably said, well, they look like they were 30 years old. Uh, when in actuality, they were one day old. Um, so a lot of times we make assumptions that uh, this particular data is an indicator of age, and it may not be the case. Um, but whatever, whatever, the, whatever uh, you decide on, whether it's old earth or young earth, even an old earth doesn't refute uh, the creation model. Uh, however, I, I myself would have a problem with an old earth uh, in that I would disagree with you, Ross, who is a scientist who loves the Lord. He's a, he's a Christian. He loves the Lord. And he's an old earther. The, the only problem that I have with that, uh, biblically speaking, is uh, the fact that if he's correct, you've got millions upon millions of fossils of dead animals before Adam and Eve ever fell in the garden. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, when you look at Genesis chapter 2 and 3 and Romans chapter 8, it appears that, uh, that death and the deterioration that's uh, uh, going on within this, on this planet itself uh, can all be credited to man's fall. So I don't think that any, any of the animal kingdom would die uh, before mankind fell. Um, another problem with the uh, evolutionary model is that of the the fossil record you know t so often the fossil record is assumed to prove evolution and and people act like you know Christians are a bunch of uh, uneducated people because they they don't see that the fossil record so clearly uh, proves uh, evolution but in actuality the fossil record is one of the biggest problems uh, for evolution. Uh, Charles Darwin, when he wrote The Origin of Species, he knew that if there was going to be evidence for his views, it would be found in the fossil record. And he, he admitted they did not have that evidence when he wrote The Origin of Species, but he expected it to be found. Well, it's been, you know, 135 or 137 years since Darwin, and... Uh, 
we still have not found uh, those missing links. Basically, the fossil record shows no evidence of missing links. New life forms appear suddenly and fully developed. You don't find half fins or half wings, okay? Uh, new life forms appear suddenly and fully uh, developed. Um, fossilization uh, is extremely rare today. A lot of, a lot of people don't, don't know, but fossils are caused by rapid burial, okay? Um, if an animal uh, dies and is not buried, it begins to decay, okay? For fossilization to occur, you need rapid burial so that before it decays, it's, it's already been buried uh, uh, and uh, will become fossilized. Uh, rapid burial, by the way, is exactly what a worldwide flood would do. The young, I agree with the young earth creationists that when we look at the fossil record, in fact, the first, the first geologists uh, were creationists that when they looked at the fossil record, they thought, hey, this has got to be the evidence of a worldwide flood, okay? Because you have, again, fossilization is extremely rare today. If, if these fossils just occurred through natural means, uh, you would still, even if you gave the, uh, even if you gave the atheist an 18 billion year old uh, universe, you would still not have the amount of fossils that we have today uh, if the present rate of fossilization uh, was occurring throughout all time. Uh, and so, so basically, it, it appears that something that is not occurring right now, some worldwide catastrophe had to have occurred that would uh, account for this rapid burial. And this is where the creationist uh, comes up with uh, uh, what is called the, uh, the canopy theory. Before I talk about that, let me just make a couple more comments on the uh, fossil record. There, there's some real problems uh, besides the new life forms appearing suddenly and fully developed. There's, there's exceptions in the fossil record. There's like one layer and the next layer that's supposed to have taken a million years or so to to have formed will be missing and it'll go right to the next layer. Well, how do you explain that that layer being uh, being left out? You also will find the uh, the fossils in reversed order. Sometimes the the simpler fossils that are supposed to be at the bottom are somewhere in the middle and more complex fossils, uh, you will find lower than that. So uh, if it was all caused through natural means, it, it, it seems very hard to explain. However, if there were tremendous upheavals in the Earth's crust caused by a worldwide flood, then you better believe there's going to be a shuffling uh, of the Earth's crust. Uh, also, uh, at times they find what are referred to as polystrate fossils polystrate fossils. What that means is uh, a fossil that goes through many different layers, several different layers. You'll, you'll have upright trees that are found through several different layers and these layers supposedly took millions of years to form. Well, it doesn't take a tree millions of years to grow and trees don't last millions of years. 
So that's another problem. Of course, if it's a worldwide flood and all these layers were just dropped down almost immediately with the uh, with uh, volcanoes and uh, volcanic eruptions and the worldwide uh, flood and earthquakes and the upheavals in the Earth's crust, uh, it fits real well with a, a flood model. It doesn't fit well with the evolutionary model. In fact, there's a well that has been found on, on its tail straight up going through several layers that supposedly took uh, you know, several millions of years to, uh, to form. And obviously, a whale is gonna, going to uh, rot, you know, long before uh, that time period. And uh, so these are definitely problems for the, uh, uh, the evolution model, but they are not problems for the creation model uh, once we... Uh, deal with the uh, worldwide flood. Take a look at Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to uh, discuss right now the, the canopy theory to show that what is a major problem for the evolutionists as far as the fossil record can be explained from the data found in the scriptures. Look at Genesis chapter 1 uh, verses 6 to 8. It says, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separate the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. So what you have here in Genesis 1, 6-8... God separated the waters so there was waters above and there was waters below. And he separated them with something that he called the heaven. Now, in the, the scriptures, you look right at Genesis 1, it says God created the heavens, plural, and the earth. When Paul was caught up to paradise, to God's throne room in 2 Corinthians 12, he refers to heaven, God's throne room, as the third heaven. So we know what the third heaven is. When you look at other passages of Scripture, uh, we're told that the birds are flying around in heaven. And then we're also told that the stars are found in heaven. So, so basically, it, it appears that the Scriptures refers to the first heaven as the earth's atmosphere and the second heaven as the rest of the universe and the third heaven as the throne room of God. Okay? Uh, having said this, Genesis 1, 6-8 seems to be saying that the, there, is going to be, there was going to be water in God's creation. There's going to be water separating, uh, uh, water surrounding the earth's atmosphere, and then there was going to be water on the earth and uh, within the deep uh, of the earth. Now, some scientific experts like Dr. Henry Morris... Who, who, by the way, is an, an expert on hydraulics. That's what he's got his Ph.D. in. That's what he uh, spent his career teaching in. Uh, he ba basically studies water. Uh, uh, what experts like, like, like Dr. Henry Morris have shown is that if you had uh, surrounding the Earth's atmosphere, 
if you had a canopy of water, especially if there was a, a huge amount of water, uh, it could help filter out some of the poisonous rays of the sun and help slow down certain decay processes, uh, such as the aging process uh, in man and the aging process uh, in animals. You know, you hear so much today about the ozone layer, okay? that if it depletes anymore, you know, we're all going to burn to death and this and that. And, and it's questionable whether that's based upon uh, good science or not, but the fact of the, uh, as to whether or not it's depleting. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, even the evolutionists admit that we need something between the sun and us um, to keep this planet uh, from heating up uh, beyond uh, the, the, the point where uh, it would be able to sustain life. Um, and so, uh, if that is the case, that could be an explanation why the Bible has many of the pre-flood uh, men uh, living to be over 900 years old. Some of them living to be over 700, 800, some of them living over 900 years of age. It could also explain some other things. Uh, for instance, uh, Reptiles, we are told, uh, continue to grow until they die. Okay? So, if the ancient Earth's atmosphere uh, had a green, greenhouse uh, type of environment because of this layer of water uh, in between the sun and, and the Earth itself, uh, you could have dinosaurs living to be ten times as old, I mean, uh, uh, reptiles living to be ten times as old as they live right now. And, uh, you know, right, right now, today, we, we have, in, in, I, think it's, I think it's off the, uh, in Australia, but there's some, some places where crocodiles still grow to be 25 feet long. But we have skeletons of crocodiles around 50 feet long. Uh, so, uh, um, you don't have to stretch the imagination to see the possibility uh, of the uh, existence of dinosaurs if the Earth's environment, uh, if some of these poisonous rays of the sun uh, were uh, uh, deflected by a canopy of water. Take a look at uh, Genesis 6, 11 and 12. This is uh, part of the account of Noah's flood. Genesis chapter 6, verses... In fact, that should be Genesis 7, verses 11 and 12. And that reads, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, so water from underneath, and the floodgates of the sky were open, so water from above as well, and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So the Bible not only tells us that there was water, a canopy of water surrounding the Earth's atmosphere, but it also tells us how much water, enough water to flood the Earth for 40 days and, and uh, 40 nights. Now, uh, the Scriptures teach in Genesis 6, 7, uh, 8, and 9 that when God flooded the Earth, He covered every mountain under the heavens um, I, I believe, I, I, I can't remember if it was 15 cubits 
which would basically be, be about 22 and a half feet above the highest mountain. Okay, so there was no land exposed whatsoever uh, from the uh, worldwide flood. Um, so you know. That, that's a whole lot of water, and that's going to make a, a, a lot of difference in the aging process of man and animals. Now, take a look at uh, Psalm 104, verses 5 to 9, because the objection immediately, you know, the fossil record's a major problem for evolutionists, so the creationist makes this, the young earth creationist makes this proposal about the canopy theory, and uh, the evolutionist responds by asking, well, then where did all that water go? Okay, and that's, that's a good question, but I think the Bible provides the answer. Look at Psalm 104, verses 5 to 9. Uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard, and some of the translations, they translate it a little differently, but they usually, if they translate it differently from this, you could usually find it in the footnotes where they have entertained the possibility of translating exactly like this one, but I think the New American Standard does a far better job than some of the other translations on this passage. Psalm 104, verses 5 to 9, talking about God, it says, He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. Okay, so it's talking about creation. God established the earth. He created the earth. Now, verse 6, many scholars believe, biblical scholars believe, that it's still talking about the creation. Uh, I disagree, and the reason for that is verse 9. I think, I think the uh, subject matter switches from verse 5, talking about the creation, to verses 6 to 9, talking about the flood. Okay? So, verse 5 is the creation, then starting at verse 6, we're talking about the flood. Thou discover it, he co God covered the earth with the deep, as with a garment. Uh, the waters were standing above the mountains. Sounds almost exactly like the terminology in Genesis about the flood. At thy rebuke they fled. At the sound of thy thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which thou didst establish for them. Thou didst set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. Now, what I'm getting at, if verses 6 to 9 are still talking about the creation, then the problem uh, is that God promised never to flood the earth again uh, with the flood, which is what verse 9 is talking about. It says there that they, the water would not return to cover the earth. If this is talking about the creation, then this verse is contradicted by the fact that the earth was flooded again. So I think it's very clear that verses 6 to 9, are not, that they are not talking about the creation. They are talking about the worldwide flood. And what it tells us is where the water went. God caused the mountains to rise and the valleys to sink. Basically, if you had a worldwide flood, um, especially if you had water from below the earth uh, bursting out as well, which is what Genesis chapter 7 tells us, uh, you're going to have... Oh, basically, the plates that they're talking about, uh, the, the, the shifting of plates and earth, that cause uh, earthquakes and that type of thing, you're going to get that kind of result uh, from uh, water... 
uh, bursting out from underneath the earth uh, and basically leaving spaces. And, and then there's going to be all kinds of upheavals in the earth's crust trying to support uh, the weight of all this water, 40 days and 40 nights uh, worth of water. So you're going to have tremendous shifting of the earth's crust, tremendous upheavals in the earth's crust, earthquakes, volcanoes. And uh, basically, uh, the scriptures tell us that God caused the valleys to sink low and the mountains to rise up uh, so that basically we live on the tops of, of mountains, if you will. A modern, ancient man used to think that we lived on pieces of chunks of land that just floated in the water. And there's a few areas like that on earth, but predominantly people live on solid ground, that basically the tops of mountains that uh, their peaks basically come out of the water. Um, this is an incredibly uh, wet planet. There's lots of water here. I mean, uh, only one quarter of the Earth's surface is dry land. Three quarters is water. Um, also, Dr. Henry Morris points out that if the Earth were a smooth sphere, no mountains, everything was just smooth like a basketball, okay? If the Earth were a smooth sphere, uh, it would be covered with water uh, two miles in depth. Okay? So uh, there's a whole lot of water. Uh, on this earth, and the, the canopy theory, I think, would, would explain it. Now, what the creation scientist does here, he says that the flood would tend to bury fossils in this order. At the bottom, you would have the deep ocean creatures. Each, each creature would basically be buried by the flood in its habitat, and the, the more intelligent creatures would try to move to higher ground, but the deep ocean creatures would be buried first, then creatures in shallower water, then amphibians and land-bordering creatures would be in the, the layers above them, and then uh, swamp, marsh, and lower uh, low river flat creatures, especially the reptiles. After that, the uh, higher mammals who retreated to higher ground, attempting to escape the flood, uh, would be covered, and last, humans uh, would be overtaken uh, because of their intelligence and ability uh, to, to get to that higher ground. Now, that might sound far-fetched to the evolutionist, but the evolutionist comes up with that same general order but says that one evolved into the other, okay? It's uh, kind of the history of the evolution of life. Well, the fact of the matter is there's many exceptions to this order. And the creation model, you would expect those exceptions with the tremendous upheavals in the Earth's crust caused by a worldwide flood. With the evolutionary model, there is, you would expect zero exceptions. If they took millions of years for this layer to be laid down and then the layer after it, uh, you would not expect to find them in the reverse order ever. Uh, by the way, this, this general rule, there's, more, th there's almost as many exceptions to this order uh, as, uh, as there are instances where you find them in, in this sequence. And so uh, the uh, uh, chaotic upheavals of the Earth's crust caused by the worldwide flood, uh, I think, is a better explanation. By the way, a global 
almost almost a completely uh, global. Uh, you would have a global ice age that would follow the flood. It would uh, almost it would cover almost uh, all the land. There would be there would be uh, portions of the earth not covered by ice. Uh, but today, scientists want the global ice age, but they don't want the worldwide flood, which uh, would be an adequate cause for that. By the way, the lack of vegetation, uh, because now the plant life isn't going to be, uh, you know, plant life is going to be not going to be growing to the extent that it grew before the flood, after the flood, because now that canopy is gone, and uh, so the lack of vegetation would kill off the dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are something like. 98% of them are plant eaters, uh, um, and the, the, usually the ones with the big, big teeth uh, uh, like to chew on things. Besides that, uh, but they're predominantly uh, plant eaters, and the lack of vegetation would kill off dinosaurs. By the way, uh, when, when you're dealing with with scientific models, remember you're dealing with circumstantial evidence, not eyewitness testimony. Okay? We talked about that last week. Well, in a court of law, circumstantial evidence such as fingerprints and, and um, uh, things like that, uh, murder weapon found in a guy's house, uh, Circumstantial evidence does not hold as much weight as eyewitness testimony, okay? But today, we've given infallibility to evolutionary scientists so that their so-called circumstantial evidence holds more weight than even eyewitness testimony. Um, there are Japanese fishermen off the coast of, you know, evolutionists say that dinosaurs uh, went out of existence uh, uh, you know, millions of years ago, well, uh, Japanese fishermen got something caught on one of their lines, deep deep sea fishermen off the coast of uh, Aust Australia, and they re reeled in uh, what apparently looked like a, uh, uh, a freshly decayed uh, plesiosaur. Basically, it look, kind of looks like what we used to call the brontosaurus, only it has fins. And... Uh, I've got an eight and a half by eleven picture of it in a, in a children's book at home, but it's a, it's a photo, copy of a photograph of it. The Japanese were so impressed that they turned around and made uh, stamps of the skeleton of a plesiosaur. The stench was so bad it was rotting that they had to drop it back in, but not uh, not until after they had taken several photographs of it. And uh, now, when the evolution, evolutionists look at that, they say, "Well, it's probably just a whale shark that." was all decayed so it looked like that you look at this photo you don't have to be a scientist to know there's nothing there's nothing that scientists say is alive today that this fits that description if anything it looks more like the Loch Ness monster than it looks like a, a, a whale shark uh, you also have African natives who are claiming that they were being harassed by some uh, big type creature and several photos were shown. Now, these guys never had Evolution 101, okay? These African tribal uh, natives. And uh, they were shown several drawings. And one of the drawings they were shown, which they identified as that which was harassing them, was what we used to call the Brontosaurus. And it was interesting because these African natives who never had 
any modern science classes, said that the, these things would not eat people, they would not eat meat, uh, but they would stomp people to death. And they also commented that they're a lot smaller. There was like a picture of a little tiny guy and this great big, big brontosaurus. The African native said that, no, they're a lot smaller than that. Uh, they're not quite as big. Um, uh, but whatever the case, uh, uh, Job, and we don't have time to look at, uh, at those passages in Job. Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. It was probably written around the time of Abraham, whereas the book of Genesis was written uh, by Moses. Uh, and so Job gives a lot of details of about 2,000 years ago, and he mentions Behemoth and Leviathan. And Bible scholars, because of this evolutionary assumption uh, that dinosaurs died millions of years ago, uh, they say, well, Behemoth must be a, uh, is this powerful animal um, with powerful loins and also, they say, well, that's got to be either an elephant, the way it's described has got to be either an elephant, a rhinoceros, or a hippopotamus. But the problem is, Behemoth, the scriptures say, swings his tail like a cedar. Swings his tail like a cedar tree. Now, there's lots of things that, intel that intimidate me about elephants, rhinoceroses, and uh, hippopotamus. Uh, but one of the things is not their tail. They have probably the, the, the wimpiest tails in all the animal kingdom.